Good morning to you all on this rather wet day. Hopefully we'll get the rain out of the way at the beginning of the week and it will be lovely for the remaining of the week. We live in hope. Good morning fellow pilgrims on our first full day at summer school. And good morning also perhaps there may be a few people from the local community here. Um, special welcome to you or any Unitarians in the area who we, we were told may be joining us. This is a special place made sacred by the many who have gathered in worship over many generations. And it's a privilege to lead worship for the first time here for me in a place so filled with heartfelt memories. And my service will start off our week-long exploration on the theme of living and dying. We come together here this morning as people of diverse perspectives. We bring different beliefs, loves, fears, joys and pains. We bring with us the unique living stories and dreams of our own lives and the lives of those who have come before us and made us who we are. And with all our differences, we come together to form something quite unique this week, a community, a one-off community that will never gather in quite this same way again. A community that is held by our common values of love, reason, and deeply engaged in the search for meaning and that which is of ultimate worth. And so in this gathered community, we're going to light our chalice as our congregations and chapels back home will be doing in their places of worship and as Unitarians worldwide will also be doing. Symbol of our liberal religious faith. And through this simple act, we unite also with that larger community adding the light of our small flame to the greater struggle to bring justice, love and peace to the earth. So please join me in singing our first hymn, number 43, and stand as you're able.
destination and when Carly got down from her chariot the people looked aghast who was this stranger time you forgot your basket (laughs) (laughs) and Carly had a basket of gold wrapped gifts and she handed them the people who had gathered, who opened them one at a time. So, do you open it? Open Dried seed head. 
and she had an ant. Oh, oh, and not to forget, she had a mushroom. Mm. And the people threw back in dismay. They weren't sure they liked the look of these gifts, especially these. And also gifts of mould and mildew and rust spread. And the people drew back in dismay, but Carly knew what she was doing. These were good gifts that would help her people. So the mould and the the, the, the mould scattered in the air, the worms did their work, the ants did their work, the fungi and mushrooms did that work, their work. And on that day, as well as growing, things began to fade. Trees that had really gotten rather tired decided it was time to rest and they fell back into the forest floor, fertilising the earth for new growth. And the weeds also fell to the ground, so that there was room for the wheat and corn. Animals also decided to rest, and some of the animals who had been around for years went to sleep. And humans, on that day, some of the oldest people decided they too were very tired and wanted to sleep. Some say that those people went to heaven. Some people said they were reborn as babies. Who knows? But while the people were sad that their loved ones had started to die when they grew old, they knew it had to be this way. Because order was restored to the earth, because finally there was space. There was room for the new generation to come. There was space for people to move around and to breathe. And there was enough food for everybody. And what seemed like strange gifts turned out to be just what this world needed. Carly, having done her work with her servant time, <laughs> oh yes, no, not there, not there yet, went back to her palace and fell into a deep sleep. This time, no cries of there's not enough room haunted her dreams. There was peace on earth once more. But it said that Carly still rides with her chariot, giving her gifts. And it said that she dances at funerals because she knows it's not really a tragedy. And time, who rides with her, has gifts of his own. Silver wrapped gifts, wrapped in silver hair. Let's see what gifts time brings.
Now for another hymn. Number 219. You are the song of my heart. a Unitarian Universalist minister, edited from a book of her sermons called Wanting Wholeness, Being Broken. And just to show that time doesn't just get ordered around and does have a voice of his own, Rob is going to read for us. We humans are cursed in the sense we instinctively reach for life and avoid death. And at the same time, unlike other animals, we are conscious we will die one day. For most of us, that acknowledgement is difficult. At some level, we are astounded to find that we too will join all the others who have gone before. We can scarcely conceive of our own non-being. We are moved to ask, what happens after death? Do we, in any sense, remain alive? There are those who believe we go to heaven, if we're good. Other traditions believe in reincarnation, that we keep doing life over and over until we get it right. Still others say that our soul merges with some kind of world soul. And some believe that this business about a soul is something we made up to help us get us through the night. I don't know what comes after death, if anything, but I have been impressed by the work of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She believed there is life after death based on the many accounts of near-death experiences related by her patients and others. There are many eyewitness accounts across the centuries and across cultural lines, and the accounts are remarkably similar. First, the soul or the self leaves the body and hovers nearby observing the scene. Commonly, the disembodied self watches as doctors try to resuscitate the body. Second, 
there is a review of the person's life. Third, there is a journey through a dark mist or passage into a peaceful realm of brightness. There are variations, but the general pattern remains the same. People who've had a near-death experience, whether monks or contemporary atheists, do not think they were hallucinating. They believe the experience was real. They come back to Earth transformed and want to share what they know with others. Also, they are no longer afraid to die. They don't go and kill themselves because they know they have still have other things to accomplish, but they are not afraid of death when it comes. These, these accounts have been criticised by some as tricks of the brain, some evolutionary pacifier to comfort us near death. My own response is that the stories seem to make sense. As I see it, the universe is dynamic, fluid, nothing is lost. Energy is changed into another form. Everything is remade anew. This is the lesson of modern physics. To believe that something in the essence of a human lives on, transformed as pure spirit, the mind of God, however you want to put it. There is another way I believe human beings live on, in the memory of others. That memory is conscious, but it is also unconscious. The conscious memory is easy to recognise. Friends and family swap tales about the one who is gone, holding that remembrance among them like the treasure that it is. The unconscious memory is more subtle. I mean by this all the daily interactions that teach us who we are and how, we, how to live. Think of us as one vast spider web. Whatever affects one part of the web influences the whole structure. A kind word here, a touch there, a truthful response, righteous anger at injustice, all these gestures, some so small as to be unobserved, are passed from one to another and passed down to generations that will follow. Things of the spirit pass down in an endless stream. The dead say to us, how could I not be among you? Rufus Jones, writer and founder of the American Friends Service Committee, described an experience shortly after the death of his 11-year-old son, Lowell. When my sorrow was at its most acute, I was walking along a city highway when I saw a little child come to a great gate, which swung to and fastened shut. She wanted to go to her home behind the gate, but it wouldn't open. She pounded in vain with her little fist. Then she wailed as though her heart would break. The cry brought her mother. She caught the child in her arms and kissed away the tears. Didn't you know I would come? It's all right now. All of a sudden, I saw with my spirit that there was love behind my shut gate. Yes, where there is so much love, there must be more. Where there is so much love, there must be more. I affirm that love is stronger than death. The source of the universe is love, and love never passes away. Death is a passageway to the union with the Absolute that will embrace us as we have never before been embraced. Let us live fully until we die, and not fear the journey to come. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth these three, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you. A reading by Marilyn Sewell.
Some of the mystics have given us intimations about what may come after death. And one of the mystics we're going to sing in our next hymn, St. Teresa of Avila, number 106, Nothing Distress You. time for prayer and reflection. We've just heard some words from a Christian mystic and I will offer some words by a Sufi mystic, the 12th century poet Rumi. And after those words we'll have a short period of silence which will be followed by music and the words for the music when the time comes are on the order of your service. But let's be still taking in the sounds around us, the sounds of the children, coming into a time of stillness. Everything you see has its roots in the unseen world. The forms may change, yet the essence remains. Every wondrous sight will vanish. Every sweet word will fade. But do not be disheartened. The source they come from is eternal, growing, branching out, giving new life and new joy. 
Why do you weep? The source is within you, and this whole world is springing up from it. The source is full, its waters are ever flowing. Do not grieve, drink your fill. Don't think it will ever run dry. This is the endless ocean. From the moment you came into this world, a ladder was placed in front of you that you might transcend it. From earth you became plant, from plant you became animal, and afterwards you became a human being endowed with knowledge, intellect, and faith. Behold the body, born of dust. How perfect it has become. Why should you fear its end? When were you ever made less by dying? When you pass beyond this human form, no doubt you'll become an angel and soar through the heavens. But don't stop there. Even heavenly bodies grow old. Pass again from the heavenly realm and plunge into the ocean of consciousness. Let the drop of water that is you become a hundred mighty seas. But do not think that the drop alone becomes the ocean the ocean, too, becomes the drop.
This week you'll hear much about what it means to live well, knowing we will die. You'll ponder perhaps what makes a good death, maybe talk about living wills and funerals, and you'll share memories of loved ones and experiences of loss, and you'll ponder the legacy you wish to leave behind. All this is good and central to our purpose in being together. But I'm inviting you today to ponder another question also, something which Unitarians don't give so much attention to, the question of what may happen after death. Not what it's like for those left behind, but whether consciousness survives beyond the body, continues to exist in some form. Some Unitarians protest that such speculation is a waste of time because none of us can know for sure. And by and large, we prefer to focus on living this one life we do know about well. And it's true that such a view can focus the mind, keeping before us those words of Mary Oliver. What do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That's perhaps the default position. But I'd ask you to at least open the door to the other possibility. Because there are Unitarians that don't take this view. And I think if we say that's the only view that Unitarians take, that's not the truth. There are Unitarians who believe we get more than one go at it. That think perhaps this is a dress rehearsal for some other life. So I'm inviting you to think if that is a possibility, how does that change things? How does it change our conversations? Would we consider our living and our dying differently against that backdrop? And when planning this service, I hesitated because as Minister of the Week, I thought perhaps I should do something more neutral, perhaps a bit less challenging, theologically challenging, especially at the start of summer school. But I kept coming back to the feeling that this question is too important for us to dismiss because we are a faith community. And so I lay my cards on the table and say, I do believe deep in my bones that the soul, self, call it what you will, does survive in some form after death. Though I'd hesitate to pin it down further. And I've come to this conclusion through my own experiences through speaking to people and through reading dozens of books. But of course I can't prove it, and I'm not even going to try and convince you I'm right, because I don't even know if I'm right. But I want to start a conversation. Because I think every faith tradition worth its salt grapples seriously with the question. And people I meet in my wider ministry are asking me these questions. And if our church community closes down the conversation and says, well, we don't really bother much about what comes after, we just focus on this one life, they'll go elsewhere. So we have a conversation. And it's worth recalling that most Unitarians in the past did believe in immortality. A hundred years ago, the Reverend Alfred Hall wrote, Unitarians believe in the immortality of the soul and they seek to base their beliefs on rational grounds. The general belief of Unitarians is they consider it their duty to prepare for the higher life of service which will open out before them somewhere in this great universe. Now, two world wars changed things. It changed the Unitarian belief in human progress, onward and upward forever, and also perhaps changed the belief in the idea of divine providence, a personal, loving God. But even so, after the war, a Unitarian theology report that concluded that this intimation of survival was still legitimate. And the report surmised that as human beings developed higher powers and became more sensitive, evidence for such survival might be provided. So I'm going to throw the cat among the pigeons and say, well, perhaps that time has come. Not evidence in the sense of irrefutable proof, but strong intimations. 
the testimonies of countless people and reputable scholars who put their necks on the line to explore such phenomena. And as inheritors of open-minded scientific inquiry, I think we also should engage with their findings. And considering that legacy of the great Unitarian biologist and researcher into spiritual experience, Sir Alistair Hardy. And of course we're right to dismiss the kind of heaven where you play harps on a cloud, although that setup does provide for some good jokes, like this one. <laughs> a cab driver reaches the pearly gates and St Peter looks him up in his big book and gives him a gold staff and a silk robe and welcomes him in. The next in line is a preacher, man of the cloth. And St. Peter looks him up in his big book and he furrows his brow and says, hmm, okay, we'll let you in, but take that cloth robe and wooden staff. And the preacher's shocked and replies, but I'm a man of the cloth and you gave that cab driver a gold staff and fancy robe, but surely I merit further than he does. And St. Peter replies, up here, we're interested in results. <laughs> when you preached, people slept. When the cabbie drove his taxi, people prayed. <laughs> and I stand here as a preacher, so I hope you're not falling asleep. <laughs> so we need the pearly gates for the good jokes. But of course we're right to dismiss the hellfire and pitchfork setup that held countless people in thrall over the centuries. I grew up with that prospect of eternal damnation hanging over me, and it took years to get over. But I think perhaps in standing against the ludicrous portrayals of a life beyond, as a faith group that favours reason, we might be in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because intimations of immortality have moved on from pitchforks and pearly gates. The idea that consciousness exists beyond the physical body is now a legitimate object of scientific research. Thousands of accounts, not just by religious folk, but agnostics, atheists, doctors, healthcare workers, and scientists. And these accounts have increased simply mainly from the fact that our end-of-life interventions have advanced. More people are brought back from a state of being clinically dead. And they come back sharing experiences. And we heard one earlier. We heard mention of this earlier by Marilyn Sewell. And attempts to dismiss them are tricky because some reports of those who have clinically died report seeing the medics frantically working to save them. They overhear snippets of conversation. They describe details in the operating room that they can't have known because they're supine on the operating table. They're clinically dead. I don't know what's happening. I'm not claiming to know. But it gives pause for thought about consciousness being bigger than the body. And Forest Church, another Unitarian Universalist minister, suggests that the trauma of death may release latent powers in us. Most of the time we're trapped in our bodies, exercising a tiny potential, but sorry, tiny percentage of our potential. But in times of extremists, other states of consciousness may break through. So, perhaps we have a conversation about what do these things mean? What can we make of them? Because to my mind, the question of what might be um, after death is the most exciting question of all. And for me, it's a bit like, well, when you go on holiday, when you take a trip abroad, don't you at least try to find out a bit what it might be like? Um, look through a few guidebooks, perhaps. And I know that preparing for death isn't the same as booking onto Ryanair and packing a suitcase. <laughs> I know it's not really a good comparison, but aren't you just a teeny bit curious? I'm, I'm a curious person. And I agree that living this one life as though it's the only one does guard against that panacea, yeah, it'll be all right, pie in the sky when we die excuse, which stops us rolling up our sleeves and trying to make this world a better place. And even Rabbi Jesus, who in the Gospels speaks quite 
plainly about the reality of a life to come. He insists that the kingdom of heaven is within us and amongst us, here and now. But I don't think it's an either-or argument. We can do our work in this world and also hold open the possibility of something more to come. Because there is a counter-argument that a rigidly held belief in this life is all you get can lead, for some people, not all, into a very materialistic, hedonistic pursuit of pleasure where life is devoid of meaning and cheap. You've heard of bucket lists? A hundred places you must see before you die and a hundred things you must do. Fair enough, but recently I, I saw a book title, and sorry if you're a beer drinker here, but one book, a hundred beers to drink before you die. And I had to ask, really, is that as far as it goes to making the most of this one precious life for some folk? Question. And every time I hear in the news of another teenager stabbed to death in a gang fight, another school shooting in the US, or a jealous husband that kills his estranged wife and children and then turns the gun on himself, I can't help wonder, did those people have any concept of anything beyond? My guess is not. If they held a belief in reincarnation and karma and what comes around goes around, would it stay their hand? Consequences of what comes beyond? But I'm also aware for every argument I make there is a counter-argument. Because, so before you tell me, terrorists and suicide bombers believe the fast track to paradise is a reward for the atrocities committed in the name of Islam. So the arguments are multifaceted. But sometimes a belief in the possibility of a life beyond enhances people's capacity to live well in this life. And Kenneth Ring, who's one of the main researchers into this phenomenon, has written many books. And in his book, Lessons from the Light, he explores the impact of near-death experiences not just on those who have them, but on people who simply read about them. And he cites one sci um, psychologist who uses something called NDE bibliotherapy with his patients. Reading about accounts of people who have been brought back from clinical death. And people with suicidal thoughts. Reading these accounts those thoughts were reduced. Pondering the fact that perhaps it wouldn't be the end of all their problems. Perhaps they'd have to work through it all again. But also a sense of seeing their lives through a greater purpose. Being reconnected with that source of love. A purpose for their life. That they do have a mission on earth. Because that's the central message for people who've had those experiences. And so those people just merely reading of those possibilities were able to find a way to work more effectively in this life with their difficulties and find their purpose. And Ring explores the phenomena of the life review, which opens up intriguing questions. Again and again, people who have had these experiences mention a sense of their life flashing before them. They remember incidents long forgotten, seemingly insignificant incidents. And they seem to have a sense of how their behaviour and words affected and impacted on people. Things they'd long forgotten. How would we live if we thought perhaps one day we underwent such a review ourselves? Would it make us more mindful? And the important thing in these life reviews that these people experience, there's no judgement from a higher power. Rather, the person themselves seems to be in a state of consciousness where they do the judging. It's as though they can see this wider perspective of how their life has been, how what they said impacted on people. This possibility, as Jean Malouf says, every word uttered, every deed performed counts. Nothing is lost. Good or bad, nothing dissipates in the void. Rather, everything recorded in the human brain and heart and in the cosmic development into eternity. Who knows? It gives me pause for thought. 
And so in this week, we'll have time and space to reflect on some of these questions. And I'd be interested to know what you think about what I've said. Some say we're random creatures of chance. We create our own meaning. That may be so. But even if I'm wrong, I choose to live my life as if in the words of Wordsworth, we come trailing clouds of glory from God who is our home and that we return to God who is our home. This enables me to live this life more joyfully and fully than I otherwise could. That's my framework. Others of you will have your own different framework. But whether we believe in an afterlife or not, perhaps we'd agree that we can't go far wrong in shaping our lives around the wisdom of that song we heard earlier. The words of that song. Why have you come to earth? Why were you given birth? To love, to serve, to remember. And those words, the American author and spiritual teacher Ram Das, when a young man living in India, he asked his guru, Neem Kerala Baba, who was on his deathbed, how do I live a good life? And his guru went into a state of deep meditation and he opened his eyes and he said, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. And Ram Das distilled this down to three spiritual principles. Love, serve, remember. And what's interesting is these three themes come up again and again in people's near-death experiences. They're shown that all that matters ultimately is how they loved. Not what their theology was, not what their beliefs were, not how successful they were, but how they loved. And they come back to this life transformed with a passion to serve. They're not sitting around waiting to be reunited with the light. They come with a passion to serve. And they also talk of accessing knowledge greater than the human mind can encompass, a sense of knowing, a sense of remembering, recognising the divine within them and within all beings and all things, remembering their sole purpose. They embody those three principles for the rest of their earthly lives, to love, serve and remember. And perhaps we can do likewise. And whatever your beliefs, consider these words by Forest Church. All we can say with any confidence about the afterlife is that it cannot be any stranger or more, expected, more unexpected than life before death. The least prepared pilgrim could not be more startled by heaven the moment following death than a prescient embryo would be astounded by life on earth the moment following birth. Think of it. Ponder life's cosmic odds and how you've already beaten them. You, I, each one of us have miraculously run our courses from the instant of creation through billions of generations to reckon the privilege of looking out on this magnificent morning. It's startling to be alive at all. Is it any more startling? There may be other lives. So even if I'm wrong, and this one life is all we get, even so it's astounding. And beyond the question of other lives, what I do feel with a deep knowing in my bones is that we are all held by a greater love than we can ever fathom. And I end with some words by another Unitarian minister, Peter Roberts. For myself, I do believe that though we are always looking through a glass darkly in this life, we are known and understood with transparent clarity by that divine consciousness which has given us a life to live as part of an eternal evolution of the spirit. And I believe that we are kept in that spirit throughout all the joys and excitements, all the sadness and the dullest of routines, all the phases of our living and our dying. May it be so.
Amen. And now our final hymn, number 221. Oh, yeah, you're right. Thank you, 212. Thank you. Glad someone's paying attention. Proves you're not asleep. adapted from Kenneth Collier and Rumi. I don't know where we go when we die, and I don't know what the soul is, or what death is, or when, or why. But what I do know is the song once sung cannot be unsung, and the life once lived cannot be unlived. And the love once loved cannot be unloved. So as we leave this place, with every breath we take, may we plant the seeds of devotion and be farmers of the heart. Day and night, may we see the face of union be the mirror of God. Every moment, may we shape our destinies with a chisel, for we are the carpenters of our souls. And with life as short as a half-taken breath, may we not plant anything but love. Amen. Amen.